All right, in chapter 7, we are coming to the conclusion of it, and we're coming also to the conclusion of the six seals. There's a total of seven seals, but we won't get to see the seventh seal until a little bit later on, but we are looking at uh, finishing up with the six seals tonight. And of course, the first four seals were the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and I won't go over all that again, but basically... We decided that it was the spread of the gospel, and with the spread of the gospel, there's going to be persecution, and persecution takes on various forms, ultimately, uh, the ultimate persecution, of course, being death. And then last week, we looked, in, beginning at verse 9, saw the fifth seal open, and of course, we talked about how that these, uh, the fifth seal was a representation of how uh, those who are living on earth Dealing with the persecution, wanting to know how long they were going to have to put up with this awful treatment uh, that they were giving. And so the question was asked in verse 10 of chapter uh, 6, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And uh, the answer that they were given was that they would need to wait for a little while and... um, they needed to have the fulfillment of God's plans take place first, and then they would be avenged. Well, now beginning at verse 12 and going to the end of the chapter, we basically have the fulfillment of what God had set forth as far as the time that needed to wait, and really having the answer finally given to those that asked the question in the fifth seal. So we're going to be looking at tonight looking at that tonight, and going to be tearing this verse into pieces and looking at it and see what we can learn. Well, let's go ahead and, and look at uh, read verses 12 through 17, and then we'll go back and make some comments and hope that you will also. And it says, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men of the, and the rich of men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondsman, and every freeman, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? So, the Lamb, who is the one opening the seals, opens up the sixth seal, And once again, John sees another vision. And this is a picture of the vision that he sees. And just seeing the vision, as we have read it to you right now, uh, what do you think this is talking about? What would lend you almost immediately, just hearing the things described, what do you think is being described here? Well, there's a story of a farmer who decided that he was never ever going to miss church again. And he said he didn't care what was going on in his fields, whether it was time to plant, whether it was time to reap, whether it was good weather or bad weather, he was going to go to church on Sunday. And sure enough, there were times when he came to church where he really needed to be out in his field planting seed. 
There were other times when he came to church on a Sunday when he really needed to be out in the field um, cutting some things down and getting them in the barn. There were some times when it was a beautiful day outside, but he still went to church even though he could have been out in the farm doing some things that needed to be, get, needed to be done in the good weather. There were times when he came to church on a Sunday when there was this terrible storm brewing, but yet he still came to church and didn't care about what's going to happen to his farm and the barn and whatnot, even though there was a terrible storm coming. Well, his neighbor noticed that he was doing this, so his neighbor came up with a plan. He decided that from now on, on a Sunday, he was going to do everything he could on a Sunday to make his farm productive and keep a record of it. He was going to show his farmer neighbor how that was so foolish for him to go to church every single Sunday regardless. And after a year had passed, he went to his neighbor one day, and his neighbor said, I want to show you something. And he pulled out a piece of paper that had all this uh, figuring on it, And he pointed out that because I stayed home on a Sunday and worked and planted and harvested and did all the things that needed to be done on that particular day instead of going somewhere else, I increased my yield this year by 30%. Well, the farmer who went to church every Sunday, he looked at his uh, piece of paper he had in front of him, looked at it, and... um, He just looked at the guy and he said, well, God's harvest hadn't come yet. God's harvest hadn't come yet. Well, right here with the sixth seal opening, we got God's harvest coming. This is the day of reckoning. The thing that should impress us as we look at the description that's going on here, uh, it's painted the way that it is to bring uh, terror to, it's to scare you, it's to cause you to tremble. It's not something that's supposed to be pleasant. It's, not, it's something that's supposed to be um, frightening and terrible. And, um, and that's the picture that's being painted here. Now, the question that is um, asked about this particular passage is, what is it talking about specifically? And you can go to some commentators, and they're saying they're t- this is talking specifically about the judgment of Rome. Okay, and then you go to other commentators and they say, well, this is talking about Christ's final coming, and that's what it's talking about when the end of time will take place and will be judged. I haven't seen this anywhere, but it doesn't mean that it's not somewhere. I just hadn't seen the commentary that says this, but I believe this is talking about both the um, destruction of Rome and also Christ's second coming. It's just divided up into two things. I think the the place where it's separated is between verses 14 and 15, and we'll talk about that in in just a moment. I think in the same way, when you read Matthew chapter 24, there's two different things going on there. There's the destruction of Jerusalem and also Christ's second coming. And so it's possible that something similar is going on here, that there'll be uh, the destruction of Rome as far as what's going to happen to the Roman Empire, and also that there's going to be a judgment day. And I think both are necessary because no way in the world will God's justice fully be realized just by destroying Rome, just because you destroy Rome and kill the inhabitants there that were doing these bad things. Everybody dies. That's not really any justice. But the ultimate justice will take place on the judgment day. And so I think we have a combination of things here. Um, We had mentioned earlier that with um, the fifth seal being opened, that one of the reasons why God is delaying 
is that he was wanting to give people time to repent. Uh, and that meant that there would be people who would become Christians. There would be more people who would die because they were Christians. But the whole purpose of it was to give people more time to repent. But the day will come, as we're well aware of, when God's patience runs out, and he'll say no more. Um, as Peter says, the day of the Lord will come. His long-suffering will end. And so I believe that is what's going on here. Uh, one thing you need to make sure you understand as we look at this, this is not literal. For some reason, everybody understands that, that the things that are being described in chapter 6 are not literal until you get to this particular verse. And they say that um, one of the things that's going to happen um, when Christ comes back is that the sun will be black and the moon will become blood. Well, no, it's not literal. We're talking about things here that are symbolic of things. Uh, we reason why we know it's symbolic because you look at verse 13 where it says, and the stars of the heaven fell into the earth. Do you know how big a star is? The earth is like a dot to a star. So how in the world would stars, plural, crash into the earth? When even it was just our own sun that fell into the earth, it would swallow us up immensely because we're like a dot to that particular sun, even in our own uh, solar system. So obviously we're not talking about those things that are literal that's going to take place. We do know that Peter tells us that the, when Christ comes back that this earth will melt with a fervent heat and the elements thereof and this world will be destroyed, but yet there's not going to be these particular um, things like the sun becoming black or uh, the moon becoming blood, but we'll talk more about that in just a moment. I thought I saw a hand or something. Okay. Well, we'll talk about that as we start going through the verses and see if we can come to any kind of conclusion or... Uh, figure out what's going on here. One thing we need to make sure we understand at the very onset as we start looking at this, that there's a lot of Old Testament imagery in here. Some of the wording that's used here this comes from Ezekiel, comes from um, Joel, comes from Jeremiah, comes from Isaiah. And I didn't take the time to find all the little verses that use these exact phrases, but as always is the case, the book of Revelation uses a lot of Old Testament imagery. And the imagery that's used in verses um, thir uh, 12 through 14 is imagery that's used in the Old Testament to describe an upheaval of a nation or a judgment of a nation, uh, such as Babylon, or even sometimes talking about Israel itself. And so that's more than likely what's going on. But anyway, it says, that when I, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. Anytime you see a great earthquake in the Bible and it's talking about in, in uh, apocalyptic language, what do you think that's a reference about? What do earthquakes do? Shake things up. It causes an upheaval. Earthquake is a good uh, illustration for a change or an upheaval because when we think of the earth, we think of the earth as being the most stable thing there is. In fact, there's even an expression called terra firma, meaning the firm earth. If there's anything that's going to remain firm, it's the earth. Well, the only thing that changes that is what? An earthquake. And when the earthquake comes, it changes that which is firm, that which you thought was established, that which you thought had a foundation. Um, they have to build uh, places that are earthquake prone. They build houses and other buildings with special foundations because if you put just a regular foundation down and the earthquake comes, it can destroy it. 
But in a symbolic sense, it's talking about an upheaval, a change. That which was the standard, that which was the status quo, is going to be done away with. And of course, that's why most people think that, at least here in the beginning, it's talking about how there's going to be change as far as Rome is concerned. That which is the standard, that which has always been thought to be uh, the case, and the Roman Empire had existed for so long, people didn't know anything else, and it was at, at its zenith at this time, but John sees a vision that this is going to change. And then it says, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. Now, when you put all that together, you got the sun, which is something that normally shines bright, and it becomes black, and you add to it uh, sackcloth, and the hair part there is probably referring to uh, the type of wool that we saw earlier in the book of Revelation would make it black wool because that's the only way it fits. Why would the sackcloth be of hair if it wasn't black? So it's talking about a blackness. Kind of put all that together and, and, and think about it for a minute, but let's work it backwards. First of all, what is sackcloth? All right, you would wear it in mourning, and you, you gave us a specific example of somebody mourning, be Job. And um, to me, sackcloth has always been a curious thing. Sackcloth is literally sackcloth. It's the cloth you make sacks out of. And it was very rough. If you've ever, uh, when you were a kid or some other time in your life, been in a sack race and they actually had sacks that you got in, those weren't very comfortable. You weren't, did not want to wear them. I never understood, though, the custom of the Middle East when you were already upset and you were already mad, you put on the most uncomfortable thing you could put on. That just doesn't add to your torment. But that's something that they did. Um, they, it, was, it was to show not only that they were uh, uh, mourning, but they were suffering even more because of their mourning. So first of all, we get a picture of mourning. This is symbolism for there's something bad happening. There is uh, mourning. There is, there's heartache. There's pain. All right? And the reason why there is heartache and pain is because the sun has now been turned black. And black, of course, once again, is another symbol for mourning. But why, what would be some kind of parallel or connection you could make, especially if this was dealing with judgment, especially if this perhaps is dealing with the fall of Rome. Take everything Jeff has said, that's the end result, but how unusual would it be for the sun that's shining brightly to turn black? That just seems absurd, doesn't it? Well, that's the absurdity of the fact that here is the Roman Empire, and it's shining bright, it has conquered the entire world. Uh, the, the known world at that time, all they know about is Rome. In fact, some of their emperors were called sun gods. But now the light has gone out. And because the light has gone out, the empire no longer exists. Uh, there's great mourning. And not only, not only was there mourning within the Roman people, there was mourning in other places because it was Rome who kept peace and order. It was Rome who supplied the, the shipping lanes. It was Rome who had the post office. It was Rome who did the waterworks. Rome did everything. But when it fell, you know, eventually, what did it usher in even in Europe? 
it ushered in the dark ages. So maybe that's some kind of thought about that. But what about the moon becoming as blood? What in the world does that make you think of? Well, first of all, when I think about blood, I think about the fact that there's going to be uh, some people hurt. There's going to be death and destruction. Uh, we saw when the, uh, when the horseman came out and, and he was riding a red horse, we thought about uh, blood and we thought about destruction. But there is one curious thing that's interesting. Um, the prophet, or John the apostle here, uh, what he is seeing revealed to him um, is something that is found in the book of Joel, and so it's pulling out of the Old Testament. But if you'll look over at Acts chapter 2, and um, verse 20, I want you to notice how Peter uses these same words that Joel's using here. Now remember, this is the day of Pentecost. And it says, And the sun shall be turned into darkness, or black, and the moon into blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord come. Now, when Peter said this, he was talking about how there was going to be a change in dispensation, a change in the way things used to be. In other words, you used to be under the law of Moses, but now you're no longer under the law of Moses. You're going to be under the law of Christ. The day of the Lord coming here is not the idea of his second coming, but it's the fact that there is a change being made. Peter's preaching the very first gospel sermon. And therefore, they're no longer going to be under the old law. And so the symbolism that he says Joel was talking about was a change. And so more than likely, that's what's being talked about here, how that there's a change going to be taking place. And of course, the change, in my mind, would be the fact that the Roman Empire is no longer going to be what it was before. There's going to be a change in everything. And then it says, And the stars of heaven fell into the earth. Um, don't know here exactly what's being talked about, but some men smarter than me believe that this is talking about uh, the stars represent uh, notable people, uh, emperors and others, those people who were thought of as being high and mighty and untouchable be, will be brought down low. And once again, it's not something that's literal as we talked about because um, even our own sun dwarfs this earth, and so have a plurality of, of stars falling on the earth. This doesn't make sense as far as logic is concerned. Then you got the idea of the fig trees casting her untimely figs when she is shaken by a mighty wind. And that picture in your mind is actually the idea of there is a fig tree who has figs on this tree that is not ripe yet. In other words, they're not supposed to fall off. They're supposed to be on the tree but the wind that comes through so shakes the tree because it's such a fierce wind that it knocks those figs off. For example, if you go out and look at an apple tree, the green apples that aren't ready to fall yet, they're harder to knock off of a tree with the wind. But those that are ripe and ready to fall, they fall very quickly in the wind. And so the idea is here that this is a fierce wind and it will cause things that normally wouldn't happen. And so there's the idea of that, once again, the unexpectedness that Rome would fall. Uh, it was not something that people were going to expect, but we're dealing with God and what God wants, and God is going to judge Rome when he wants to judge it. 
And um, we'll come back to all this in just a moment, but this tie in verse 14, which I think is still talking about the fall of Rome, um, says, And the heaven is departed, and the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled uh, together. And um, it's kind of hard to picture, especially the language in the King James. But the idea almost is that here you've, you've rolled a scroll out and uh, you've pulled it to the extent that, that the scroll tears. And when a scroll tears, what's going to happen? What would you say, Jeff? All right, it's going to go... Okay, that's the idea behind it. Same way if you were pulling down a shade and you let go of it suddenly. Uh, to put it in our metaphor today, you're looking at a book, and all of a sudden the book just slams shut. And that's the idea here, that uh, when this judgment happens, it's something that's going to uh, be sudden, and it's going to be devastating. And in fact, uh, it goes on and says, Every mountain and island were moved out of their places, from the mountain to the sea. Everything's going to be... Uh, taken care of. Now, as I said, I believe in these first uh, three verses, and there, there's a lot of people who will disagree with me, but this is the way I look at it, that this is actually talking about Rome itself. This is the fall of Rome. Uh, they are going to be judged specifically, but then as we're going to see beginning of verse 15, the world is going to be judged generally. And um, as I said, there are those who think this is all talking about Rome, and there are those who think this is all talking about the, seven, uh, the second coming of Christ. Either way, it doesn't matter because in the end, uh, whether Rome, this is all talking about Rome, they're going to be judged in the end. And if it's all talking about judgment, well, that takes care of it too. Any questions or comments? I don't know if any of that helped you with your figs over there, Michael, or not. Okay. <laughs> all right. Anyway, um, that's the best I can do with that. Let me remind you once again that the purpose of these visions is not to come so much to specific conclusions, but as to paint a picture. And you look at the picture that's painted so far in verses 12 through 14, it's not a pleasant picture. Um, Can you imagine how terrifying it would be to look up and all suddenly the sun turns black? That would make you stop your car and get out and look at that for a minute. Uh, when we have an eclipse here in this country, it's big news. I remember at the school, boy, they uh, bought all these different viewers for every kid to go outside. We had classes canceled, and everybody went outside to watch the eclipse. I don't know if you remember when that happened, because it was a good one. It was close by, and a lot of schools participated in it, because that's a big deal. But imagine if it wasn't an eclipse. It was just all of a sudden the turn, sun turned black, and all suddenly the moon turned to blood. The point is, this is something that would cause terror because it's not the normal thing. And the stars that you saw in the heavens all suddenly came flying towards you and crashed into the earth all around you. Uh, kind of like being in a meteor shower and they're all hitting you all at once. Um, the picture that he's wanting to paint in our minds is that this is a terrible thing that's going on. And as far as the world is concerned, the fall of Rome was a terrible thing. As far as Christians were concerned, it was a good thing. And the Christian part of this was in verses 9 through 11. The rest of the world we're dealing with with the rest of the chapter. Okay? All right, before we move on, any, any other comments, anything? This is not the most romantic part of the book of 
of Revelation, but still stuff we need to look at. All right, beginning at verse 15, I think the picture changes. And once again, this is just my opinion. I don't know if you can find anything that will back that up or not. But just my opinion that we're going to talk about uh, the rest of the world in judgment. Because every generation has had its room and every um, people's had to deal with persecution in some form, even living under the old law. And so this is vindication for all that, regardless of what uh, dispensation or what empire you lived under, and also would apply to us today as far as vindication for us. But it goes on and says, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondsman and every freeman hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. All right, when you first start looking at verse 15, there should be something that if you look at it and stare at it for a little bit, you'll notice something that stands out. And it might help if you maybe do some counting. Seven. There are seven different people being described here. And so you get the idea that what's being talked about here is complete. Number seven is a number for perfection or completeness. And so if he's listing all these men and different kinds of men, and we'll go back and look at the different kinds of men, but the main message is not who these particular men were, but the idea of what? If it was describing all these different kind of men, and he listed seven, and seven is the number for completeness or perfection, what is he saying by listing these seven men? Yes, Jeff. There you go. It covers everybody. Uh, he, can't, he can't list every single person in here. He can't list, you know, the doctor and the barber and the, and the milk salesman. But instead, he's listing uh, these seven people as a representation of all mankind. And we need to understand that uh, when it comes to the judgment day, God is no, uh, plays no favoritism. Um, God, God does, does, does not show uh, partiality to anyone. Um, in fact, as Peter was telling Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and verse 34, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. And what he means by that is, if you want to be saved, and God will save you if you, if you turn to him, but if you don't turn to him, the same thing applies. You're going to be lost. Uh, there's, no, there's no exception to the rule. You're either going to be saved or you're going to be lost. Uh, there's nothing you can, there's no, there's no in-between. And that's the idea here. And that's the reason why I think this is talking about uh, perhaps the ultimate judgment day when all men are going to be uh, judged because of what's being listed here. Obviously, you start going through the verse. The kings of the earth are obviously uh, pretty sure who that is. Um, then it says, and the great men. I'm just curious if anybody has anything different for the great men. Does anybody on their phone have access to the contemporary English version? Because it has an interesting translation here. It says the famous men. Okay? So you got your kings and you got your famous men. And then you got the chief captains who were the um, military people. And then it says. Um, and the mighty men. Does anybody have anything different from mighty men? 
The idea is not so much that they were strong and mighty and physical, but it's talking about their influence. These could be people who are, uh, I see you shaking your head. Yes, you got something similar to that? Okay, wealth and influence. These are the shakers and the movers. These would be the people that maybe weren't kings and maybe weren't military leaders. Um, Some of them may have not even been rich. It's the idea that they had influence on society. Okay, so you've got the kings, you've got the famous people, you've got the rich man, you've got the military leaders, you've got the people who influence society. And then it says every bondman... That would be a slave either because of being captured or or because you're an indentured servant. And every free man, and that would be anybody who was not a bondsman. All right? So when you put all these together, you put in the kings of the earth, you put in the famous people, you put in uh, the rich people, you put in the chief captains and the mighty men or the influencers and every bondsman and every free man, who did he leave out? Didn't leave anybody out. And, of course, the picture is, once again, these are people who are not Christians. These are people who are lost, and we know that from what's going to happen next. But the point is, he mentions seven different people, and he covers the whole spectrum of it, and that is that nobody's going to escape this. Nobody. So this is more than likely talking about the general uh, judgment of all men. It's interesting, I was reading something about this particular text a couple days ago, and it talked about the mighty men, the influencers, and this particular writer made mention the fact of, about how there are people living in our world today who are movie stars and who are other people who, for whatever reason, people want to know what their opinion is on something. Uh, if something happens in politics, bring a, somebody who was starred in a movie to come up and tell you what it all means. Or what decision needs to be made for the world? Get somebody who is a sports star or, or a Hollywood actor. And they're, and they're the ones we're going to listen to. Well, the very fact of that is absurd. Absurd. I can't say the word anymore. They took the words out of my mouth. Absurd. There it is. But anyway, but I thought that was kind of interesting when I read that because there are people in the world today who influence society and oftentimes they influence society for, for the worse. They make the world worse place. But yet, for some reason, we flock to them and want to know what they say. And want to hear what they have to, their opinion on. It kills me when Congress has a hearing and brings in a Hollywood actor to find out what they think about it, even though they have no expertise whatsoever in the subject that's being talked about. Their only credential is they're a Hollywood actor. That's never made sense to me. But anyway, I'm get off my soapbox here and start stop preaching because I'm I'm not supposed to preach. But anyway, um, but the point that's going on here that the lost that are lost are going to be lost, and it won't be an exception to the rule. In fact, it goes on and pictures a very terrifying thing when it says they wanted they went and hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. Now, first of all, the stupidity of thinking they can hide from God. How in the world can you hide from Almighty God? Has anybody ever heard of anybody doing that before? Adam and Eve did, didn't they? They thought they could hide from God. They thought they could hide behind a tree or something. And God showing them the stupidity of what they're doing. He asks them the theoretical question. Oh, by the way, guys, where are you? Like he didn't know. And he was playing with them. Um, 
Somebody else popped in my mind, too, that thought they could hide from God. You know who else I'm thinking of? Jonah. Jonah thought if he went far enough away from where he got the commission from God that somehow another God wouldn't know where he was. But God knew where he was because God is everywhere. But these infidels think they can hide from God. But then they say something I think is very curious, and it shows you the bad situation that they're in. And it says, And they said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. Now, what are they asking the mountains and rocks to do? Kill them. There you go. Janice is very good. She gets a gold star. And that's how even after she forgot her pen. I had to take a gold star away from her because she forgot her pen, but we'll give it back to her now. But anyway, they're saying, kill us. Fall on us. Kill us because we don't want to face what we're facing. Now, think about how stupid that is. You think because you're dead, you're going to escape the judgment of God? Maybe there is some kind of play on the fact that shows the stupidity of the lack of faith that people have who do not put their faith in God but put it in themselves. They come up with stupid stuff and think if somehow or another if the rocks would kill them, that that would put an end to their misery. But folks, that's the thing about the judgment day. Death does not put the end to it, as some cults tell us. Instead, it's just the beginning. All they've done is hasten the fact that they're going to be uh, facing God. Um, so it says, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. And who would that be talking about? Hide from whom? Who's the face on the throne? Face of God. Why do you think it says face of God? Why didn't it just say God or one on the throne? Why the face of God? What picture should come to your mind? Uh, what's it talking about? Well, the face of God is so glorious that no one can look at it. In fact, um, the Bible says you cannot see God at any time and live. Remember, Moses wanted to see the face of God, and God said, uh-uh, that won't work. I'll walk past by you, and you'll catch just a glimpse of my hind parts. God doesn't really have hind parts. He really doesn't have a face. But the point is, the glory of God is so massive and so powerful. And these men, for the very first time, are going to feel the full glory of God and realize who He is. And they want to get away from that glory. They want to hide themselves from that glory. They don't want anything to do with that glory. One day when we go to heaven, we'll experience the glory of God, but we'll experience it in a good kind of way because we'll be able to see Him as He is. And we'll be liking. But that's the idea here. But the thing that I, that I think is the most, almost comical part of this verse is you get to the very end of it. And it says, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now why is that little part at the end kind of comical? That's right. Can you... Can you imagine, Jeremy, if you were walking through the woods and you came across a guy and he was hiding behind a boulder and you said, man, what's going on? Why are you hiding? This lamb is after me. <laughs> and that's almost the absurdity of what you got pictured here. This little, this little lamb, remember? And that's what they're scared of. But, of course, we understand and appreciate the fact that the lamb that's being talked about here is Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain, the lamb who has opened up these 
seven seals that we have open up before us. This is Jesus Christ. And they thought of him as a lamb in the sense that he was easily sacrificed. They, could, they took him and nailed him to the cross, and the Romans were involved with this. And in fact, the entire world was involved with this. We were involved with this because anybody who had sin in their lives put him on that cross. But that which was a lamb that was sacrificed has the power and the ability now that they have to fear him. Remember what it says, what, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and declare that he is indeed the Son of God. Um, but when I read this, it made me think about some of those movies that are out now, that, well, not now, but in the past, that in order to really terrify somebody, uh, they would have like a, maybe a little doll come to life and start attacking people, you know. It's a very scary thing if you're sitting in a room and all suddenly a doll turns and looks at you. That'll freak you out, won't it? Because you're not expecting that. You expect a doll to be all innocent. Uh, there's a big to-do, even a movie not too long ago, about clowns. Uh, you know, people, some people are terrified of clowns. Well, the purpose of a clown is to make people happy and laugh. And, but, man, if one turns bad and starts chasing around going, wee, 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 it changes everything. And so that's almost the picture of terror here. That which should not cause terror is causing terror, and that intensifies the terror because they were scared of a lamb. They were scared of a lamb. Where's my time gone? All right. And, of course, the great question that's being asked in verse 17, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? And like I said, I believe that this is talking about not only the destruction of Rome, but also uh, the final destruction and judgment of all people. And I may be wrong, but the way the case of Revelation is, it's what picture we get pictures in our mind that uh, brings us the most comfort. And if I was someone living in that time period, I'd want the vindication of the fact that Rome was dealt with, but I also want all the people who have defied and tried to destroy God's people to also be judged. So let's look at what's happened real quick. I was waiting for everybody to come in. Uh, chapter 4 was about God was on his throne. Chapter uh, 5 was the fact that Jesus Christ is the lamb. He's the one that slain, was slain so we can have forgiveness of sins and a home in heaven. Chapter 6 is the opening of the seals. The seals began with the fact that the gospel was spread all over the world. With the spread of the gospel, there came persecution. With persecution, there came ill treatment. With their treatment, the ultimate persecution was death. After all this has been revealed to us, there's the scene in heaven where the saints of God are asking, how long before we are vindicated? How long before your judgment will come? Well, the answer we found with the opening of the sixth seal, God will take care of the situation. Whoever needs to be judged is going to be judged, whether it's talking about the immediate judgment of Rome or it's talking about the judgment at the end of time. We don't have any more time, but does anybody have any question or comment? All right, we'll stop it there then.